Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. I do improvised horror stories. What I do is I pull a random title and then make up the stories from there. If you have any titles you want to submit, you can send them to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com or just send them, send them to me directly. But uh, as, I was co- as I was recording last night, uh, the uh, synth that I use... Uh, during the summer months for Spook Show, uh, copped out on me. It's a very old keyboard, and I don't think I'll have uh, the means to repair it. Uh, so if the uh, synth sound does come back on the show, it's not going to sound quite the same. But that's only an opportunity for more uh, intriguing things to happen, I suppose. So at the moment, I'm just playing piano. All right, so let's begin. This first story is called West Coast Octopus. of the United States, a lot of people were flocking west to find their fortune. Patrick Smith was one of those people. The west coast and the southwest were uh, hotbeds to find and strike oil. Patrick went out there. Barely a penny to his name, dubbing his life savings as an accountant, to make the journey west, and the bare minimum supplies for digging for oil. The only real scheme he had, uh, same scheme that any aspiring oil ty- tycoon had. 
just to find a place in the earth and just start digging. Just digging really deep holes, hoping, hoping to strike oil. That's all it took. Just superb hard work and determination, and even more superb stupid luck. There's one hole that uh, Patrick found that had some oil sediment in it, and he dug it even deeper. But a mining accident uh, led him to break his back. up fine, but he couldn't do anything labor-intensive, uh, including uh, digging straight down for oil. For oil. Eventually, another guy uh, found Patrick's hole and started to dig deeper into it, and then he eventually struck oil and became rich. He became a household name in the oil industry of the late 1800s. Patrick was disheartened. So he did what everyone else did uh, when they failed in California. Uh, they migrate north to the Pacific Northwest. He arrived in Oregon in uh, about the 1890s. Uh, Oregon was only uh, part of the United States for a very short time before that, a few decades about. But still, Patrick had to make a living. He didn't know what to do with himself, with his time, with his life. To raise a family, and if he could, how would he be able to provide? So, in the meantime, uh, he became a commercial fisherman off the coast, often attempting for various uh, ships and boats, not really running a boat himself. So one day, uh, he's with a smaller boat. And the crew's about to call it, but Patrick keeps uh, going at it a little bit longer than everyone else. Keeps the net out in the cabin. It's like, dude, we're reeling in. We're heading out. Patrick's like, no, please, this is a bit longer, you know? Captain was just like, dude, I'm not gonna like pay you anymore if you catch something. Like, don't worry about it. The haul's over. We got plenty for the day, for the week even. So then Patrick's just like, oh, just a little bit longer, please, please. Captain looked into Patrick's eyes, 
knowing that he had nothing else going for him. Sirius is like, alright, sure, fuck it. So the rest of the crew were just hanging out. Some of them reading comics, some of them telling stories to each other. Patrick pulls up the net, and he didn't find any fish, only an octopus. Patrick marveled at the octopus, all of its legs, its squirminess and all that. And the captain said, oh, just toss that back in, we don't sell that at all. Patrick said, well, but it's such a cool octopus, though. And the captain said, well, it's not your ship, you know? Or not your boat, rather, you know? Just get out of here. We're gonna go home, all right? Patrick started to panic a little bit. So just said, oh, wait, 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 wait. So he ran around the boat and tried to find, go through the supplies. And he found a big jar. So he took the jar and uh, shoved the octopus in it. It was a very snug fit. Patrick said, okay, I'm ready. So Patrick returned to his apartment uh, in Portland, Oregon. in a jar. He had a small bathtub and he filled it with water. Then he emptied the octopus into it. It squirmed itself out very, very slowly. And then before long, the octopus just sprawled out all over the bathtub in a bathroom. Patrick filled some water up with a bucket in the sink, and he just started to splash it at the octopus from time to time. Patrick was just watching uh, the octopus, and then he has a tennis ball with him, so he just tosses it up in the air, just to pass the time, tossing it toward the ceiling, see how close he can get to it, and then he stutters his throw a little bit, and starts to land on the octopus, and it bonks him on the head, Patrick's just like, oh shit, sorry octopus. Then the octopus just takes his tentacle and grabs the ball and then tosses it right back to Patrick. And then Patrick was just like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. So he tosses it back to the octopus. The octopus catches it very quickly. And eventually they're just playing catch back and forth. 
This gave Patrick an idea. Saves up his money again. And then he uses it to uh, purchase a small boat. And hire a couple of traveling sailors. To exclusively uh, fish for octopus. And oct octo for octopi. Octopuses. Whatever the plural is. the coast and eventually they catch a dozen of octopuses storing them in jars in the meantime feels like he's got enough of them, he starts to sell them as pets in Portland. He makes his own little signs, he has a little cart uh, that he travels around with. And the sign just says, Octopus, the perfect pet. He advertises all the cool things you can do with an octopus. They can chill in your bathtub, you can play catch with them. Listen to you while you ramble about your problems on your in your life. They can squirm and blink a lot. People are skeptical at first. Well, why not a furry creature? Why not a cat or a dog or a goat? Patrick just says, "Oh no, you've never." hung out with an octopus until you've hung out with an octopus. He sold some octopuses to a few people, and uh, surprisingly, they made uh, excellent pets for them. One of them was a high-profile travel writer in the Northwest. And he wrote about in the local rags, and then people started to get, get into the idea of uh, having an octopus for a pet. almost trendy as a national thing. And uh, this allowed more traction for Patrick to sell out more octopuses and to invest in more boats and start a fishing company in general that only that only uh, caught, uh, caught octopuses and pets and all that. It became a national trend. By the 1900s, people were talking about octopuses as pet in the same in the same context as cats and dogs. It would affect fashion in the next few decades. When flappers were becoming all the rage, uh, pinup girls would pose with octopuses and cats and dogs. Cats, dogs, and octopuses were the holy trifecta. 
far as pets went in that country during the time. It didn't last, of course. Owners of octopuses would uh, encounter mysterious murders. Often their throats were cut, perhaps they were stabbed, strangled even. And almost all the victims were died being very oily and moist, in the same way octopuses are. Once the people were murdered, the octopuses would be missing. Some people speculated that uh, octopuses were such a high commodity that they were being stolen by people. But even if they were stolen or robbed, that wouldn't quite explain uh, such vicious murders. Other people theorized that uh, the octopuses were, were the murderers themselves. By the 1910s, this developed an anti-octopus uh, advocacy group. They were constantly talking about why octopuses were bad and make terrible pets. However, this advocacy group were also funded by the coalition of cats and dogs and various chains of pet owners that didn't carry octopuses. Chains of pet stores, excuse me. Now this uh, advocacy group was ruining Patrick's business directly. They got more people to believe that uh, octopuses were murdering people and uh, the families of the victims were suing Patrick and his company for all they were worth. It was a class action lawsuit that eventually took him down. Eventually, uh, he was at a house that he owned uh, by the coast. bathroom uh, with his octopus, and he was looking at a small window there, out to the sea. And he was just shaking his head. Uh, this anti-octopus anti uh, propaganda is ruining me. The octopus just blinked and squirmed around, not paying too much mind uh, to what Patrick was saying. Patrick started to scheme. Yeah, well, that's... They think they know what's up. I can do, like, an anti-mammal campaign. I can bribe, uh... Bribe scientific institutes to do research on why fur is bad and how allergy allergies can be deadly and all that. Yeah, that's what I can do.
Patrick was pacing back and forth. Trying to come up with his next scheme of attack. And the octopus just squiggled on to the window in the bathroom. And he started to look outside. To the coast, into the ocean. Patrick didn't notice, and he just left the bathroom. Leaving it cracked open. He went to his office to work on some letters, uh, to send to his lawyers and his uh, executives in the company to figure out ways how to steer the narrative away from uh, anti-octopus propaganda. Then he heard something break. He rushed into his living room, and the lamp was broken. As well as a gooey, wet tentacle trail leading from the bathroom through the living room, and then outside. house and he saw the octopus slowly make its way to the coast, to the water. Patrick shouted, where are you going? The octopus didn't listen and just kept going to the water. Hey, come back here! Patrick went over and tried to grab the octopus. Was far, far too squirmy for him to latch onto. Eventually, the octopus wraps around Patrick, uses tentacle to strangle his throat. Patrick is being strangled by the octopus, slowly slumps to the ground, not being able to breathe. Patrick made eye, eye contact with the octopus. And he saw the octopus's pain from being restrained in the house. His lust for freedom. And the resentment that the octopus built over time for Patrick. And the industry that he developed. capture a species and sell them off. Eventually the octopus has a moment of compassion and let, lets go of Patrick's throat. Patrick's still weak and catching his breath on the ground. Looks up and just watches the octopus return to the ocean. Patrick breathes heavy, still on the ground. Looks, up, looks out to the octopus and just mutters as he's gasping for breath. But you're my first. You're my first.
Okay. This next story is called The Sweet Sap of the Sycamore. Janie and Lou face each other through the forest, through the park. They're grabbing each other and clutching each other and laughing together. <clears throat> they were in a deep love so profound it was stupid. Good stupid, of course, if there is such a thing. take on the world together. And anyone who witnessed it uh, were either moved or repulsed if they were cynical. But in all seriousness, Janie and Lou did love each other in a very real, serious way talked about spending their lives together. So Lou took out a box cutter and he was like, hey, check this out. into one of the trees. An old sycamore. I was so tall, it reached the top of the park. And Janie was just like, oh, what are you carving? And Lou's just like, just watch, just watch, you'll see. So what he did is, uh, about uh, 12 minutes, he wrote out the phrase Lou and Janie for Evs. All inside of a heart.
Janie was just like, oh, wow, Lou, that's so sweet. And Lou just said, yeah, that way we can uh, visit this place, you know, years in the future. And then just be like, oh, shit, it's that tree with the carving from so long ago. And Janie said, yeah, that would be really cool. And Lou said, yeah, it's totally what everyone does in this park. Janie said just, well, what do you mean, everyone? And Lou said, well, look, look around. Look at this tree, even. Janie looked at the sycamore on the other side and saw some light faded carvings on it. And then Lou said, come here, there's some more over here. And they walked down the forest and they saw more carvings and trees. Some of them lovey-dovey. Some of them just honoring a memory. But they'd all have at least two names or a set of names, often with a date on them. Some of the carvings go, uh, went as far back as the 70s. Then Janie said, oh wow, it's so cool. And Lou said, yeah, we're going to be part of history together, you know? Their generations will see her carving and they'll, they'll see her love, the uh, embodiment of it, in a tree. Essentially, when they went to an open field park, an open area where they could watch the sunset together. As they sat together, both of them realized that around the same time, that neither of them have, has ever felt more content and complete before in their lives. Both of them would each cherish that memory of them watching the sunset together for as long as they would live. sun starts to set a bit more. Janie's just like, alright, we should probably head out. It's getting a little bit dark. Lou said, yeah, it's kind of a waste to walk. We got, I got flashlights though, but uh, yeah, let's get to it. So they start walking together. And Janie's just like, yeah, I want to see some more of these trees. And then Lou says, yeah, there's, yeah, there's some on the way. Janie's just admiring uh, all the carvings on the trees. Some of them have hearts. Some of them have penises. Some with either names or initials. And some with dates. Then Janie kind of slows down and 
She catches one carving that catches her eye. And she says, hey, Lou, check out this one. Lou stops and turns uh, to see what Janie's referring to. And they both read it together. And all it says is, do not carve on the sycamore. carved our names on the sycamore, yeah? And then Lou said, well, yeah, but there's plenty of sycamore trees here, you know? And Janie's just like, oh, you must really care about sycamores, you know? And then Lou said, yeah, but why would he carve on a tree if he cares about trees so much? like an uber driver telling you why uh you shouldn't ride uber uber while he's giving you a uber ride or something Lou's just like yeah something like that before it's too late. And Janie says, that's really creepy. And Lou's just like, yeah. Super weird. And Janie says, like, alright, let's just, uh, let's head out of here, you know. Keep this, uh, trip on a high note, you know. And Lou's just like, yeah, totally. walking together it gets a little bit darker and they turn on the flashlights they're holding hands still very much in love the leaves crumble beneath them as they walk steps, slower and far distant behind them. And then she says, Lou, do you hear that? And Lou's just like, no, what? And Janie's like, there's another set of footsteps, like, real far behind us. And Lou turns and she's like, I don't see anything. And then Janie said, yeah, well, we didn't really see anyone at the park at the tail end of the day, right? And Lou was just like, no, it was just us. But I mean, it's a big park. People will wander around and stuff. It happens. I'm sure if we keep our distance, we'll be fine. And Janie's just like, yeah, maybe. 
eventually the other set of footsteps led, on, led up. Then they return, uh, in the form of running footsteps. They get closer and closer to the couple, like they're about to charge at both of them. And Janie jumps, and she's just like, holy shit! And Lucy's like, what? What is it? And she's like, you didn't hear that at all? And he's like, no, no, what happened? And Janie's like, I heard more footsteps on, like, the broken leaves and twigs on the ground. And, like, it was like, the footsteps were, like, charging right at us. And then there's like, a gust of wind, and it was weird. And Lou's just like, well, I didn't, you know... There's some wind that uh, made the leaves move, but they weren't like footsteps. And Janie was just like, no, they were definitely footsteps. And then Lou's just like, you know, let's just... Let's just not worry about it, okay? Let's just get out of here and get some hoogies or pizza or something. She's like, okay, well, let's just fucking, let's keep walking then. And Lou's just like, alright, let's just keep walking. And they kept walking, and there are more footsteps behind it, behind them getting louder and closer. And Janie's like, okay, so do you hear that? And Lou's just like, yeah, yeah, I can. Like, hey, who's out there? Gets nothing but silence. Even though the sounds of the third pair of footsteps were occurring right behind them. And then Lou just said, yo, whoever you are, just fuck off. I got that box cutter and I got a knife too, but we should walk a bit faster. And she's like, okay, can I have the box cutter? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. So they're walking. The sun's completely gone by now and they're just in the dark with their flashlights. further to the parking lot, and Lou's just like, I don't know, we should have been there by now, and Janie's just like, Lou, and Lou's just like, listen, I'm sorry, like, I, you know, I've been in this park a million times, and we should have been there by now, and she's like, well, did you get all fucked up because it got dark or something, and he's like, no, no, something, something's off, it's not just me here. any signal we should just like check her where we're at on the gps and just go from there and it's just like yeah yeah cool so they both took out take out their phones to see who has signal 
JD pulls out a, a her map and uh, suggesting her Wi-Fi and her GPS settings to make sure she has it right, but she still doesn't get any signal and she can't get a track of where she is in the forest. She's just like, I'm not getting anything. How about you? Lou? She looks up and Lou's gone. Lou! She starts to panic now. Lou, where the fuck are you? Nothing but silence from the woods. She starts to tear up a little bit. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. So she starts walking. She doesn't know if it's in the right direction or not. She just keeps walking. She shouts again to the woods. Lou! But no response. She gets out of her phone and tries to call Lou, but there's no answer. thinks about calling someone else, but she thinks it'd be better if she gets out of the woods first. Eventually, she hears more footsteps. She's shining a flashlight in that direction, still shouting Lou's name. When she shines her flashlight to any footsteps, the light only exposed an empty dark. She's walking for an hour at this point. She tries to call people on her phone, but she doesn't get any signal. Occasionally she'll scream Lou's name, but she feels like she's never going to see him again. Eventually she finds the sycamore that she carved, uh, that uh, Lou carved their names in. Lou and Janie for Ebbs in a big heart. she hears a, a muffled tone. Sounds like Lou's voice. Some kind of scream, but not. Like a muffled scream. Janie responds, Lou! Lou! She still, still, still hears the muffled screaming and the 
and some scratching. She follows the sounds. More footsteps are alongside her now. And then she finds a tree, and she finds Lou. But she finds Lou is encased in the bark of the tree. limbs are covered. Some of his flesh is still exposed. His nostrils are still there. And so are his eyes. And he's looking at Janie with tears in his eyes. He's sobbing. It's not as pouring out of his nose. He's trying to breathe, but his uh, nose is getting clogged. And Janie says, oh shit, Lou, Lou. She takes her box cutter and then she tries to carve out pieces of him. off a piece of bark, uh, there's some blood underneath it, and then Lou hollers with pain. Eventually, Janie tries to uh, undo the bark, covering Lou's mouth. And when she removes it, she's mortified that he has no lips and only his teeth are exposed. starts to sob a little bit more and he speaks without his lips and all he just says is don't carve into the sycamore tree get out Janie understands this much and he uh, says more things repeats some of the phrases over and over about not carving into the sycamore and getting out of the forest while she still has a chance. She starts to cry. And then they hear more footsteps together. And then all Lou says, just go, go. And a high-pitched rasp, like he was losing his voice lack of his lips uh, stunted his syllables as well. Janie worries that's the last time she's ever going to see Lou. So she kisses him on his teeth, and then she runs off. sense of direction, but she hears more and more footsteps. Some running, some walking, but they're all heading in her direction. 
starts off behind her and to the sides. And then it comes from every direction, heading her way, getting closer and louder. Eventually she finds herself at the original Sycamore once again. tree graffiti that uh, Lou carved into the tree. Lou and Janie for ebbs, all encased in a heart. And all the cuts that Lou made, they all start to bleed, trickling down the bark of the sycamore tree like sap. stares at the graffiti, crying, mortified, and above all else, wondering if that's loose blood coming from the tree. Lou and Janie weren't seen uh, after that day. They were sighted as uh, disappearing in the forest. It was part of a string of disappearances. happened within the past century. No one's ever found out why. And no one's ever found out the circumstances, uh, because no bodies were ever found. However, if you visit that old park, and you find that old sycamore, you'll still see the engraving that Lou put in. Lou and Janie Forebs, all encased in a heart. But also on that tree, what you'll see engraved with the same box cutter is the simple phrase, fuck you. This next story is called Floating Lump. certainly didn't start off as an anomaly. Outside of a residential neighborhood uh, near Las Vegas, it was just a little lump in the desert. It looked like a clump of sand, but it was moist. 
was all the tannish brown sand around it. It was just this one little lump, a little bit darker than the rest. Kind of taking on a blackish greenish hue. And it was just a little bit moist. It seemed like a little moist lump of sand. in the neighborhood would hang out in the like the desert area to kids playing and whatnot and just be like oh there check out that lump uh, there's that lump again then the lump started to get bigger once it uh, got to the size of a soccer ball half erected into the ground actually started to think like, well, what the hell is that? Some of the local suburban dads would try to dig it up with their shovel. And then they were just all like, yeah, I don't know what that is. They were having no luck in prying it out. And it became a neighborhood staple, an activity. Just like, yeah, try to try to pry out that lump. trying to pull out Excalibur out of a rock. No one was having any real luck with it. Eventually the lump started to get bigger. It was growing uh, two or three times its size. phone calls were being made to uh, news outlets, uh, law enforcement, government agencies, just being like, yeah, there's this weird fucking lump in the desert. No one can get it out. No one knows what it is. The little lump was making uh, big strides in Southwest news. People were surrounding it, trying to figure out what it was as it was getting bigger and bigger. became a tourist attraction. People go to Vegas, they'd always, uh, they'd always stop by the little lump in the sand. People take pictures, pose next to it. And it still got bigger, but only, uh, incremental, incrementally, uh, over time.
eventually when the when the lump started to reach a uh, reach six feet in diameter started to raise itself from the sand and then it started to float visually it just looked like a floating orb covered in greenish and brownish moist sand and perpetually dripping like slag tights or something and it just floated there about five feet off the ground What is this floating orb in the desert? Besides the nature of the orb, the fact that it was floating was its own anomaly. How is it capable of levitating? Did it still comply with the physics of gravity? Or were physics just not what we thought they were? discover that atom that wasn't quite complying with physics and then people were just thinking well physics as we know might be bullshit but who knows it was a similar type of anomaly both scientists and civilians alike were just like well this might uh redefine how i uh, classify existence and uh, all that jazz um shit existential about it. They didn't know if it was uh, a gift, if it was a virus or medicine or something. People tried to remove it from the air where it levitated, but it was no use. suggested of just blowing it up and then other people were just like yeah well, we don't know what will happen if we blow it up eventually they were just shooting missiles at it and still nothing happened it remained intact floating above the sand shake and vibrate rapidly and a deep rooming sound started to come from it 
military dudes are around pointing guns at it. Media people are pointing cameras at it. And a bunch of people who were just curious in general just watched. The crowd just watched as this floating orb just shook and vibrated above the ground. Eventually, a slimy sound started to occur from the orb. And then the bottom of it cracked open. It split in half. And then a big clump of goo fell out. seemed to be a humanoid figure in it. And the floating orb, uh, the bump, split open. It just dissipated himself, dissipated itself into uh, the black and green sand. And then it just dissipated some more and then turned into the brown and tan sand uh, that matched the rest of the desert. And inside the goo, there is a hairless man with his flesh soft as a newborn. He tried to wake himself out, wake himself up, tried to stand. quickly hospitalized, putting on a breathing ap apparatus. Military and scientists uh, collected the sand. They're running tests on it. And as far as they could tell, with the exception of a light radiation, it was just regular sand. gave them a serious man uh, the best treatment that they could. But he was still asleep in a coma. Though there were cameras on him, one day when they all went static and people went out to check on him 
the man was gone. Nobody knew who he was or where he came from, but people still speculate about it today. that he was uh, part of the first wave of humans uh, that were planted and born on Earth and sparked the species. Other people think he was uh, planted in the Earth more recently, even after humans came and were, he was designed to uh, blend among humans. Some people thought that uh, the lump just emerged from the dirt and sand organically, and the mysterious man came from natural causes, causes that we've yet to understand. And some people think that he's off in Vegas, uh, and he got a job as an Elvis impersonator, blending in with the public and hanging out with JFK for some reason. like any other human. He didn't quite have any uh, distinct facial features. So no one knows where he is today. No one knows uh, what his purpose is. What his plan is. Or if he's just trying to live. Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. And good night.